When does human life begin? It's the central question that requires answering when considering the human right to life, and science and medicine provide clear answers. It turns out that the greater challenge lies in addressing the ethical, moral, and political responses to the scientific and medical reality of human life. Who counts? Are all human beings worthy of the human right to life? Dr. David Prentice, Vice President and Research Director for the Charlotte Lozier Institute, joins us to consider these issues and share his passion for science, medicine, embryology, and resolving human rights issues that can sometimes seem unresolvable. I'm Tom Shakley, and this is Life, Liberty, and Law. Welcome to Life, Liberty, and Law. I am Tom Shakley, and I'm joined today by Dr. David Prentice. Dr. Prentice, it's so good to be here with you. Good to be with you, Tom. And we've also got Noah Brandt here from Americans United for Life with us as well. Thanks, Tom. Good to be with you both. So, Dr. Prentice, let's start off with the simple stuff. Where are you from originally? We're in D.C. right now recording at Americans United for Life, but you're not a D.C. guy, are you? Not at all. I'm from the heartland. From Kansas. Uh, grew up there, went to school there, and then started wandering around. Uh, actually was at Los Alamos National Labs for a couple of years, University of Texas Med School in Houston for a while, and then Indiana State University for almost 20 years. And then while I was there, I started getting these calls about, can you explain science to me? Can you explain especially embryos and beginning of life and then some of the weirder sorts of science uh, cloning stem cells all of these various things as well as our topic today the beginning of life and what does it mean to be a human being and so uh, eventually uh, came to dc uh, the district of chaos And uh, spent some time at Family Research Council. And then, as you mentioned before, I'm now at Charlotte Lozier Institute. We're the uh, education and research arm of the Susan B. Anthony list. That's wonderful. Yeah, and we've had, of course, Dr. Michael Nuon, also affiliated with the Charlotte Lozier Institute as an associate scholar, as well as his teaching responsibilities uh, from the social science aspect. And we're here to talk about the science science aspect here today with you. Uh, your academic backgrounds is vast. Um, what made you want to go into this work? What drew you to it? I was fascinated from early on, even as a child, about life. Uh, I can remember growing up on the farm, you might uh, shoot a rabbit, but then I would dissect it. And I had a friend uh, on a neighboring farm, and they had a young calf that died. So we did an autopsy. And so early on and uh how old are you when you were doing the calf autopsy uh, this is maybe about eight or ten years old wow yeah and i we kept the uh the heart in a jar of formaldehyde for years until my mom got tired of looking at it and threw it out (laughs) but uh we were uh thinking about life thinking about biology and the science as well as the more uh, philosophical aspects of life from very early age that's a fascinating thing. You know, I was speaking with somebody recently who has kids who live in the city and they were making the point that, you know, they realized that some of these kids who have never been out in the country, they don't know 
like where a chicken sandwich comes from, right? <laughs> they have right. no idea. Yeah. Um, but your your background is so different from that. That's like you know the the heartland that we've talked with Noah before about as a as a St. Louis kid. Um, you know that's that lends some of that uh, that real America vibe to it, right? It it does. It it, it really uh, again you know growing up on the farm, you are you're seeing life all around you, whether it's the crops that are growing and being harvested, whether it's the animals uh, of all sorts of kinds around you and so on. So, I, I mean, again, that was just my fascination from very early on and gravitated towards the scientific aspects of it as well. So do you consider yourself first and foremost a scientist? I, I do consider myself a scientist. That's my training. I got a PhD in biochemistry, a bachelor's degree in cell biology, my postdoctoral work was in cell biology and so on. That's where I have spent my life, both in terms of my training, in terms of my academic existence, if you will, both in terms of teaching and laboratory research and so on. Uh, for about 40 years, uh, actually over 40 years, don't want to say how long, but <laughs> a little over 40 years, we'll say, uh, have have been a scientist, but then started getting these questions about uh, not just the philosophical aspects, but the policy aspects. Had a friend who was elected to Congress, and he would call and ask questions about, can you tell me about cancer research in two minutes? Typical politician. But, uh, you know, can you explain, because uh, this was about the time in the late 90s where you had Dolly the cloned sheep, where you had stem cells, especially embryonic stem cells starting up, and trying to just explain the science. And I've always loved teaching, loved being able to, to explain things and getting students to understand it and so on. And it was when all of these, I just call them challenges, started to arise in terms of uh, how do we view a human being, even at the various earliest stages of life. Were there parts of your extensive education or early career where your views were challenged or, or where you faced hostility for sort of your perspective, especially in school? Because, you know, there's, there's a lot of people in the medical profession who uh, aren't very friendly to life. Uh, I, I'd say yes, and at various points along the way. Not nearly as much in terms of my training, but certainly as a professor on a, a secular university campus and talking about beginnings of life and, and talking about the meanings of that beginning and the value of every individual human being, no matter what stage or age, and so on. And I can remember, uh, not so much from the students, but certainly from my colleagues being challenged about that. And at, at one point, uh, I had a sabbatical, and I was engaged in part of that sabbatical with the policymakers, and in trying to explain the science to them, but pointing out the, the real biological facts. Your life begins at conception or fertilization or and and tom and noah were making fun of me earlier but i've got this little pen <laughs> produced by some friends at what's called contends project and it's got a little pull out that shows the very earliest stages of life and as they would say life begins at carnegie stage 1a that's the scientific it's a very impressive pen thank you so it's much it's a grade a pen 
Yeah. But, you know, that's the biological fact. What really goes on in terms of these debates, uh, the culture of life versus the culture of death, if you will, has to do not so much with the facts about when a human life begins, but about what value we give to any human life, beginning, end, or in the middle, Uh, various types of disabilities or not. Uh, What's the value of any human life? And, And I believe every human life has value, no matter what stage or age or condition that we're in at that point. And that's one of the difficult things as we address these issues is so often the science and the medicine are being asked to resolve questions that that they can't speak to, at least in terms of the science and the medicine, right? Because they are questions of ethics, they're questions of philosophy, they're questions of, of, of practical politics in some respects. And everybody's kind of looking to doctors and to other experts to say, well, what should we do? And you can give us advice, you can give us the facts, you can give us the Carnegie Stage 1 and on, um, but the rest of us have to kind of wade through what does that mean in terms of our law and policy? What sort of law and policy can affirm human life? So let's get into that a little bit. What is the, going through the basics concerning human development, um, let's start off very simply, what is embryology? We hear this word, um, and what can embryologists tell us about human development? So embryology, or, or a more modern term that some like to use, is developmental biology, But the point is looking at those basic biological facts from the very earliest, from that Carnegie stage 1A, when sperm met egg and a new being, a new organism from the scientific perspective began, up to the point of birth or thereafter. Because actually, if you look at it, we continue to develop throughout our life. Biologically, there are changes that continue to take place. I mean, think about the differences between a newborn and a teenager. Think about the differences between a teenager and a senior citizen. There are all these things that go on, but embryology primarily looks at that time from conception, to use that particular term, up to birth or soon thereafter, and what sorts of changes are taking place in that organism, in that individual, because really it's a time of building. It's a time of developing the basic cells and tissues and organs and putting them together and growing then in size. It turns out if you look at the actual biological facts again, by about 8 to 12 weeks, pretty much all of the basic organs and tissues have come into being. And they're in place, in fact, by 12 weeks. And primarily from that point on, we're talking about now even the bulk of our time in the womb before birth. The bulk of that time in terms of our organization is taking place in terms of growing in size and complexity. It's not a matter of, oh, we're going to develop a whole new organ or tissue or whatever. It's there by 12 weeks. Walk us through, in particular, this idea that I think is difficult for folks to grasp when they become over-ideologized on these issues, when you say a new being comes into development at that, at that moment of conception, at the earliest stage, what distinguishes a new human being from a medical or scientific standpoint? So the, the thing that you'll often hear is that, well, a cell is life, a sperm is, a li- is life, it's alive, and so on. 
but it's not a life in terms of being an organism, to use that more technical scientific term. It's not a new being. You can put an individual skin cell, an individual egg cell, an individual sperm cell by itself into a womb repeatedly, millions and millions of times, and you will not get a baby start to form. But if you combine that egg and sperm and allow it now to start that sort of development that is typical of every organism, not just human beings, it will continue to grow and develop. There's a, a what one group calls a developmental trajectory that goes from one to two to four to eight and so on and starts to develop various specialized types of cells and starts to develop those various organs. And you see that because it is a new organism and that means it's a new being. As you're describing this, it couldn't seem clearer, right? The idea that, okay, here is the moment when a new human being with DNA and a, and a whole future, a whole trajectory wholly separate um, from what came before from its parents. This is when it comes into being. Seems super clear. What explains, do you think, this this gap, uh, this chasm, really, in knowledge between sort of what the culture believes broadly, you know, and what the science tells us about human development? Is this a, a case where we haven't been formed in, you know, the embryological or uh, in information? Or is this something else? Is there something else going on here? Uh, I think it's a... a willful deception and misinformation in the culture to say we don't really know when a life begins when a human being is formed we don't really know when it becomes a human being uh the typical things in the past were well it's just a blob of cells right a ball of cells well that describes one particular stage of our development that's true after about four or five days you do look like a ball of cells but that's how you should look at that stage of your life right and that's how pretty much any organism looks like at that stage of life so you know it, it again becomes a matter of i don't think we have been educated in general in terms of, of public education about what the actual stages of development are of embryology of life and I think there, there is this strand that has continued to run through it in terms of deception. Uh, you catch glimpses of truth, even from those who favor human destructive types of research, in particular something like embryonic stem cells and so on. There was a, uh, a hearing a number of years ago when then-Senator Brownback ask not the typical question that you usually get, when does human life begin, but turn to the scientist who was in favor of embryonic stem cell research and said, doctor, when did your life begin? And being an honest scientist, he said, well, you know, at conception, at, at fertilization, but I can't hug an embryo. Wow. Wow. Pete Buttigieg, running for president, recently said that it's a cosmic question of when life begins. We just, we can't know. And for someone like him, right, a Rhodes Scholar, uh, a former McKinsey guy, a really smart person, I don't really think he doesn't know. I think that there's just, there's purposeful either deceit or at least clouding of the truth 
because it doesn't comport with the outcomes he wants, right? Bingo. I mean, you're trying to justify a particular position in terms of how you will use or abuse any particular human life at some early stage of development. We're obviously talking about whether it's abortion, whether it's embryo research, any of these sorts of things. Uh, well, I've got to justify it by saying that, yeah, I don't, I don't really know. We just so couldn't it, know. It, it just yeah. couldn't be that case. And so we will take this sort of uh, blinkered type of view of life. We don't really know. And so, well, if we don't know, it's okay. Which, again, kind of completely goes against the precautionary principle. If you don't know, you're not supposed to proceed. I do no harm. Right. Exactly. You know, Dr. Prentice, I'm, one of the reasons I'm so happy to have you here is because my knowledge of the hard sciences is very, very low. Uh, you know, in, in an episode of the television show The Office, the sort of buffoon character, Michael Scott, the boss, goes to their, the a firm is having financial troubles and he goes to the accountant and the accountant's trying to explain to him all of these complex things. And then he goes, let's try this again. Explain it to me like my third grader with a lemonade stand. So <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of want you want to do that with some of these scientific terms. I want you to, yeah. to, to explain it to someone who has no science background, someone like Anoa. So let, let's let's try to define a few of these daunting terms. Okay. Conception. Conception would be the beginning of that organism or being, and for humans in particular, it's when the egg meets sperm. Fertilization. Fertilization is the same thing, when the sperm met the egg and the two combined. So total synonyms pretty much for our purposes, right? Yes. Okay. Implantation. Implantation is later on. You've been in existence as an embryo, as an organism, as a being, for about seven days. And you've been developing during that time. You're now probably eh, between 100 and 200 cells. There's actually been uh, some differentiation, some specialization. So you now have an inner group of cells surrounded by an outer mass of cells. And that outer mass is needed because that allows you to implant, to contact and actually work your way into the lining of the uterus. And, you know, while you're really doing that at that point, you've got enough cells, you're kind of bulky enough, bulked up, that you've got to go find some way to get nutrition. You can't just diffuse in oxygen and nutrients. And so the embryo heads for the uterine wall. It actually chews its way in to that uterine wall in search of maternal blood vessels, which have those nutrients and oxygen. It implants. How about zygote? A zygote is a single-celled embryo. So my next one was embryo, but that's... Embryo, I guess, is is wider, right? It can be... Embryo typically has been defined for humans as the first eight weeks of life from fertilization slash conception slash... Carnegie stage 1A, the beginning, up to about eight weeks. And again, remember what I mentioned earlier on, by about eight weeks, you pretty much have all the basic structures and tissues in place. After that period, and it's it's arbitrary, frankly, but after that period from about eight weeks to birth, you are known technically as a fetus, but you're still a developing human being. We're just going to call you something different, just like we would call a toddler, something different than an infant or a teenager. 
Isn't it fascinating, too, to see how these terms can be used also to dehumanize? I think of yes. this in the context of, you know, fetus is often thrown around as, a, as an implication of less than human, right? Or at least less worthy of full human rights. Yeah, we're not going to call it a, an unborn baby or an unborn child, except fetus, the, the word really is translated as young human. Yeah, little one. Yeah, yeah. And it comes from that Latin. And I think about, if you have trouble getting your head around this, think of the same thing if we did it to anyone else at any other stage of human development. Imagine if we did it to, you know, imagine your grandmother, your grandfather. Imagine someone calling them derisively, well, they're just a geriatric. Yeah. They're not a person. Exactly. They don't have the same rights we do. They're a geriatric, just like they're a fetus. Um, immediately it becomes clear that's, that's deeply demeaning, right? That's not what exactly. we want to do. Uh, but we do it all the time when it comes to the child in the womb. Uh, I think it's super helpful. Thank you for walking us through these stages because they are terms that uh, are important to know, but also uh, can be used in a negative way, uh, depending on, on what your goal is uh, politically. Um, as we consider human development, and as we've talked about some of the challenges of, of making it clear that human development is a continuous process, right? It begins from the moment we come into being, it continues through our development um, there with our mother, right? Um, then continues through birth, through young adulthood, through a life, through old age, uh, and finally to death. Then we're left with sort of the question of, okay, what do we do with, with our fellow human beings? Those of us who are here, who get to make laws and decide um, what sort of society we're going to have, um, you know, this is the harder question, essentially, that we're, we're working through. When does a human person deserve rights? Who counts? Uh, this isn't a scientific question, uh, as we've established, but it is something we have to... It is at the intersection of, of science and medicine, at the intersection of ethics and morals and politics. What role do scientists like you play in helping us resolve these questions? Well, I think science in particular here can inform our decisions, can inform our, our debates, if you will, but looking back at the basic facts. So uh, the real question we're asking is, does every human or does any human have value, deserve particular rights, and so on? So what science is bringing then to the table is, so who counts as a human being? Because whether you say... Every human has rights and value, and we should be treating them with respect and dignity, or are only some humans, some characteristics, whether it's biological, whether there's some sort of physical, whether there's some sort of mental type of thing in terms of whether we're going to give anybody rights. But it does come back to if this is a human being. And so I think especially science can bring that to bear science can also help inform the other parts of the debates in terms of you're saying well is this a true distinction between human beings let's take the example of down syndrome now you've got somebody with an another chromosome wait a minute is that a human being oh yeah it is a human being these are individuals uh, that count as human beings so are you going to give them rights what about one of the other sorts of chromosomal differences what about other sorts of just genetic differences that aren't whole chromosomes what about 
developmental differences that crop up, not because of genetics or chromosomes, but simply because of some exposure, some experience, if you will, in the womb or afterwards. Uh, you could do the same thing for people that are already born. If I uh, lost both my legs in some sort of accident, am I not a human anymore? Well, the answer is I am still a human, obviously. You haven't changed my being simply because of some physical characteristic and so on. Is somebody in a coma? Now, you, now you've got something that's... Uh, a mental type of difference perhaps, certainly a physiological difference, does that mean that they're not a human being? Does somebody with diabetes not a human being? There's a genetic change here, a physiological change. So science can, I think, speak to that whole debate about who counts as a human being. I think especially as we consider the rights of the disabled, there's a tremendous push in the United States and, and elsewhere that essentially says that uh, the degree of your ability or disability sort of correlates uh, in practice, if not necessarily explicitly in law, with the degree of protection you receive, right? I mean, I think people face this every day. They realize when they maybe encounter a situation with a loved one or themselves, they suddenly find themselves saying, hey, wait a minute, why am I being denied care? I'm still here. I'm still a person. I need this help. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because, you know, uh, we are seeing this unfortunate trend towards less care, but in fact, uh, from the very foundation of this country, it's actually been more a maxim that uh, the most vulnerable are the ones that we protect the most, as it should be. All right, so how do we approach this conflict of, of rights-based arguments? Um, you know, the idea that enforcing protections for the unborn, um, you know, is said to infringe maybe on the rights of the mother. Um, you know, what is the proper medical response to an argument like that? Well, I think it, it still comes back to what's the basic biology. Is this a, a human being? Is it an individual human being? Well, the answer is yes and yes. This is a new individual in space and time. I mean, if you think about it, identical twins or clones, if you want to go to some of the more interesting challenges that we face now, uh, you know, three-parent embryos, all of the various kind of stranger and stranger science we start to look at too. But the basic question still comes back to, is this a human being? Is this an individual? And the answer is in every one of those cases from that very beginning – on through the rest of development, including the development postnatally, after we're born, and as we continue to mature and age, and even senesce. This is an individual human being, a new individual in space and time. So I think that's the basic fact. Science then can't answer any of the further questions about philosophical, theological, or even policy, we still have to, though, look at what's our bedrock principle. And if it's that every human being is valuable and deserves protection, science gave you your answer already. So here's an, an edge case, right? You say, um, you know, one thing you'll hear frequently is that, well, the developing child in the womb is the equivalent of a parasite on the mother, right? What's the response to that? Well, that's that's not biologically accurate, we'll put it that way. Uh, here's a new individual in space and time 
the way humans, the way mammals develop and grow is there is a period in our early life where you are sheltered and developed inside the mother's womb. That's not a parasitic situation. That's a normal embryological situation. And we have to realize that here's another individual. And what rights does that individual have? It's not a matter of uh, acquiring certain rights. As a human being, you have certain rights. Yeah, I think when you look at it in that context, understand that as the developing child is being sheltered by the mother, there's, it's, it's found literally a home, uh, a place to develop, a place of, of welcome, we hope, uh, as it enters into these early stages of human life. And, and when you then consider that across the spectrum of human development, I think it becomes easier to tie in how we should respond in a life-referring way across the spectrum of the sort of issues you've outlined, whether that's uh, somebody you know experiencing a coma, um, who you know needs care and attention to come out of that, whether it's somebody like a Terry Schiavo, um, whether it's somebody uh, like, you know, the recent news was a, a Paralympic athlete um, who competed in the 2012 Olympics and, and really distinguished herself, uh, just availed herself uh, in Europe of euthanasia um, because of an advancing illness. When we look at this and we say, what is the thing that can bring us together? It's a re-recognition that we always need to provide a home for one another, a shelter, that it's a normal, healthy human thing biologically, but also socially and culturally to ensure that we're providing places of welcome, places of refuge for people who need it, whether that's the child in the womb or whether it's somebody at another stage of human development. That's right. You know, we talk about the human family and very glibly at times, but we really are a family, and a family takes care of each other. That's the only way they remain a family. And from, you know, whether we're talking about the the small, close-knit nuclear family now or the entire family of humanity, that value we place on others is so important. And if we really are living as a family, we should be protecting and nurturing and valuing every other member of the family. Dr. Prentice, you know, Tom and I aren't really on the same plane as you are with an under, with an understanding of the deep scientific and medical realities, right? But there are a lot of people, there are some people who are, and a lot of people agree with you, but there are people on the other side, right? Like Planned Parenthood and the Guttmacher Institute have scientists and doctors and researchers who they put out there and uh, promulgate their opinions, right? That, mm-hmm. that comport with a very uh, anti-life pro-abortion view. Have you had the chance to engage with, the, with you know, well-credentialed, potentially well-meaning people in your field on the other side? And are you really disagreeing on the facts? Or are you just disagreeing on how you interpret the facts? Uh, the short answer is yes. Uh, a number of times to engage, we'll say, with folks on the other side of this debate. And I don't really think we are disagreeing on the basic scientific facts. What we disagree on is what value we place on any individual human being. Uh, so whether we're talking about uh, aborted fetal tissue research, whether we're talking about embryonic stem cells, whether we're talking about fetal pain and the existence of that while we develop in the womb and when people acquire that sort of 
uh, ability to experience pain. And, and you, know, you can look at all these various subjects that are, again, sort of current points of debate or challenges. You find that we don't really disagree on the basic biology. It's the interpretation and what value you place on that entity, if you will. Yeah, it's amazing. I saw something recently that something like 96% of embryologists agree about what we've just discussed here, about the basic facts of human life. You know, back, back to this Contents Project group, and, and, and I sort of glibly said life begins at Carnegie Stage 1A, but that's been the accepted scientific view, especially among embryologists, since 1942. This is not new science or, or a new interpretation. It's not something new since Roe, right? Exactly not. It's simply the scientific facts, the biological facts. And you can interpret that or twist that and justify it or misinterpret it however you want to justify you know, the outcomes that you want. But the facts remain the facts. Yeah, and to this point, you know, you think just because you get somebody who seems credentialed to endorse something doesn't mean it's within their scope. You know, a lot of doctors endorsed Marlboro <laughs> cigarettes back in the day. That, that doesn't mean it was a healthy thing. Um, so, Dr. Prentice, like Catherine Glenn Foster here at America's United for Life, you travel quite frequently around America to different states, uh, speaking with lawmakers and policymakers, testifying concerning protections for the human person. Uh, can you tell us about any particularly impactful experiences you've had over the years? It's, it's kind of interesting, especially out in the States, uh, have been some of the most interesting sorts of discussions, especially with policymakers. I can remember one state, uh, in upper Midwest, where I actually had a lawmaker approach me and go, you know, uh, I used to believe this sort of thing, that this really wasn't a baby, this really wasn't a human being in the womb. And then we had our first ultrasound of our first child. And I realized, you know, that's, that's a baby in there. That's, you know. And, and this was someone who had been very much on the other side of this whole abortion debate. And said, you know, when I actually looked at this individual in the womb, I realized, you know, that's a baby. I can remember another instance uh, in Kansas we had back in 2013 help the legislature organize and and uh, pass a law to develop what's called the Midwest Stem Cell Therapy Institute. They are dedicated to coming up with treatments and therapies using adult stem cells. No embryonic stem cells, no aborted fetal tissue, just the ethically derived types of cells, which, by the way, are the ones that work and the only ones that work. So every year we're supposed to go back and report on progress. And after uh, a few years, we went back and in the committee meeting, we were presenting and the legislators are, are very warm and welcoming, I might say. Doesn't matter what side of the aisle are, they're on because they saw the results. But the ranking member at the end of our presentation uh, said, you know, when this first came up, I thought this was all political and ideological and uh, you're trying to get, you know, ideological and religious ideas in here in terms of the science. He says, but I was young, and I see now that all of this stuff is real, and the the ethical is the successful. And uh, I, I wish you all the best, and I think we ought to provide even more support 
for these types of projects that are life-affirming and life-saving. Yeah, you've seen that with the stem cell debate over the past few decades as this has grown up, you know, uh, especially 20-some years ago. I think back, you know, I'm from Pennsylvania. I think Arlen Specter, our senator, was a big proponent. He, you know, his, his approach, the way he kind of positioned, he says, we just want to do everything we can. Mm-hmm. But, of course, you know, his attitude was to fund things that were ideologically driven, uh, sort of the same fear that this this uh, lawmaker that you just mentioned had about adult stem cells. Um, but adult stem cells have worked, and they are working. Yeah, it's somewhere over 2 million people have been successfully treated now with adult stem cells around the globe. And uh, as far as evidence of any success with embryonic, zero. I remember in like 2004, this was a really contentious issue, and it was being promulgated as sort of a panacea that could really like change the landscape. I remember in the Senate race in Missouri between Claire McCaskill and Jim Talent, the actor Michael J. Fox, who has Parkinson's, cut a really great ad or, you know, great for Claire McCaskill for the McCaskill campaign saying Jim Talent, you know, doesn't want to fund embryonic stem cell research and this could literally save my life and save other people with Parkinson's disease's life. And that just hasn't turned out to be the case, right? Not at all. And in fact, uh, subsequently, uh, Mr. Fox, on I think one of his shows, actually came out and said, you know, I don't think embryonic stem cells are going to treat anybody. I'm looking someplace else in terms of my cure, my treatment for Parkinson's, and basically repudiated that. And, and in fact, that's been the case for a number of hardcore scientists who at one point had very much backed embryonic stem cells because, uh, well, as one U.S. senator put it, it had the potential to cure all known maladies. <laughs> Talk about a little bit of hype, maybe. A little bit of hyper. <laughs> yeah, but you know, what you found is, again, that uh, even the scientists who had originally backed it have decided that it's probably not going to work out. Uh, Dr. Jamie Thompson from University of Wisconsin-Madison, Mr. Human Embryonic Stem Cell, was the first one to successfully culture human embryonic stem cells and maintain them in the laboratory. After about 10 years, uh, he was the second one. There was a, a Dr. Yamanaka in Japan, the first one to show that you could make the equivalent types of cells, but from like a piece of skin and add a couple of genes and so on. And in point of fact, uh, Dr. Thompson had a private sort of commercial laboratory. They were going to do all these great things with embryonic stem cells. His lab now doesn't use embryonic stem cells at all. This is Mr. Human Embryonic Stem Cell, but now they use this in, it's called an induced pluripotent stem cell that you can make from skin and whatever. Uh, and he's not the only scientist that's, that's moved that direction. Dr. Yamanaka, uh, I want to throw in here in terms of our discussion, was asked why he came up with this instead of using embryos. Said, well, I, and he told this to the New York Times of all places. said, well, I went to a colleague's lab. I looked through the microscope at a human embryo, and I thought, you know, there's such a small difference between that embryo and my daughter's, and we can't mm. keep destroying embryos for this kind of research. Uh, there's got to be point. a better way. That's incredible. The humility, too, right? Yeah. I mean, it just, you know, he, as as a leader, but numerous scientists who have more quietly but still switched their whole pathway from destroying and, and utilizing embryos 
for this type of research and and doing something that there are no ethical problems with it. And it's very important to underscore here too, the embryonic path hasn't failed for lack of funding. It's not, not a, at it's, all. Yeah, it's not as if it's not as if this is has not been explored. It's not as if it hasn't been tried. It's that the adult stem cell path is is providing results. What are some of those results of adult stem cells? What are some of the success stories? Oh, man, there, there are a lot. And, and we actually, if I can put a little plug in here, we've put together a website called stemcellresearchfacts.org uh, where we've tried to have the patients tell their story. Instead of me giving the dry scientific facts, you have a patient who was treated for stroke who basically was paralyzed on one side of her body, had a problem, a severe problem with her speech, bad enough that she was embarrassed she didn't want to get married to her fiancé because she couldn't walk down the aisle and so on, was treated with adult stem cells directly injected into the damaged part of her brain from the stroke. And this was not a new stroke. She'd been that way for a few years. Uh, She now has very few impediments and has been married and has a baby. That's incredible. Uh, Spinal cord injury. It's not a cure at this point, but again, adult stem cells have shown some significant advances in helping people regain some movement and sensation. Heart damage after a heart attack. The big thing they're working on now is what's the right dose and how do we administer it because they're seeing thousands of patients now who have benefited. Multiple sclerosis is another good example. An autoimmune disease where your body's attacking itself, it attacks the nerves and and ends up causing all the problems that you see in terms of movement and, and nervous system with multiple sclerosis. They're now able to take patients and they will say put them into remission. It's not a matter of like the drug treatments where you just sort of reach a plateau you actually bring them back to a very full sorts of lifestyle. Uh, obviously, lots of, of types of cancers and leukemias, anemia, sickle cell anemia. And, and one of the few places where I've seen even the medical literature use the word cure, that adult stem cells are curative for sickle cell anemia. And, and, you know, again, the list just kind of goes on and on to dozens and dozens of different conditions. Still a work in progress in a lot of cases. You're not going to go down to the corner clinic, but that's where, as you say, most of the funds should be going and not to the life-destroying and, frankly, failed embryonic stem cell and fetal tissue research. It's such an instructive example, and I think something that we should look at in the future where the way this had been framed for decades was even if this is ethically dubious, we just need to do it because it's going to, it's, it's the next frontier and it's going to save lives. And so we did it, right? We did something that was unethical. Yeah. We did science and medicine that was unethical and it didn't work, but we were right on the cusp of finding something that was ethical and did work. So if we would have just been a little bit more restrained, if we would have used our conscience, let our conscience guide us just a little bit more, we would have had less destruction of life for no reason, and the results that we're already having that are working. Yeah, exactly. What you find out, uh, surprise, surprise, the, the ethical pathway turns out to be the one that works and helps patients. And I'm sorry, 
isn't that what uh, National Institutes of Health is supposed to be about and what we're supposed to be doing with medical research is trying to put the patients first and help them, which ends up helping, again, all of us in this family of humanity. You put people back to work. You restore families. You restore simple uh, joy of life for somebody to be able to uh, live and love and carry out their life. We've talked a lot on Life, Liberty, and Law about bioethics broadly, its different facets and and the implications of what we know from it. Uh, We've also talked about human flourishing, right? And that's Mm. where this intersects with politics because, you know, at the end of the day, there's not really so much good politics and bad politics. Politics is uh, or should be about human flourishing at the end of the day, how to achieve the human good and how to share in a common good that elevates all of us in the society that we share a part in. And so I think as we're considering these issues, it's helpful to do exactly what uh, Dr. Prentice and, and Noah, you're talking about in awakening the conscience yeah. on these issues that uh, we do have some scientific data on, but that we need to turn over in our hearts and come to conclusions about, especially um, when either we're confronted with an issue in our life, whether maybe we see uh, an incredibly moving advertisement, something like that Michael J. Fox ad from, from so many years ago, um, and when we're asked and, and trying to be persuaded on an issue so that we can come to a reasoned conclusion that does do good and avoid harm. Yeah. And you know, the, the phrase, uh, we want to we cure at all costs, at all costs. Well, you know, that's a tremendous cost. And that, that's an ends justify the means way of thinking. Exactly. And instead, uh, and this is where you know, science intersects again with things like ethics, with things like funding and economics. Policy is not just about the science and the ends justifying the means. It's about promoting the common welfare. It's about human flourishing, as you mentioned. And our hope is, our prayer is, that politicians look for the policy that is going to actually promote human flourishing not just the the best outcome for the most people, but all human flourishing and protecting, again, the most vulnerable. Well, we're going to share that graphic of all the Carnegie stages of development so that everybody can see that uh, and learn more about about that information. Um, And you're also teaching. You're teaching the next generation, right? You teach here in Washington, D.C. Trying to, yeah. I teach a graduate course uh, where... Basically, we're trying to bring people up to speed in terms of some of the basic embryology, genetics, current challenges, and so on. But now have, they can just listen to this podcast. You know? <laughs> there you go. No, no, no. They still got to come That's to class right. and do the exams. And right. but uh, but the idea is to to bring them up to speed so that they can engage and engage uh, in a thoughtful and wise manner to try and again promote good policy. In human flourishing. Well, David, we're so grateful to have you with us. One of the things we do every show is our shot of gratitude. We talk about something we're grateful for. What is something you're grateful for, Dr. Brennis? I think uh, I'm grateful for the fantastic colleagues I have in the pro-life movement. Not just the, the geeky scientists, which there are a number, and I'm very grateful for them, uh, fighting alongside, but but everyone who is doing in one way or another, playing their position, 
and promoting a culture of life and promoting human flourishing. Beautiful. Noah, how about you? You know, uh, before I just got married last month and before I got married, I didn't have any babies in my sort of immediate family. You know, my little brother was uh, is in college and my sister's married, but doesn't have any children yet and no cousins or anything or niece or nephews. But getting married, I now have a baby niece who's one year old and uh, her name is Ever and she's adorable and sweet and smart. And it's fun as, as I get to do this work every day, really getting to see you know, a human in development. She's outside the womb. She's one years old, but it's like she is changing so much every time we see her every month or two. uh, She's doing new things. She's getting stronger. She's walking. She's learning. And so I'm thankful to, uh, to be a part of her family now. That's wonderful. That's awesome. I think as we're talking about these things, I think about just the, the wonder that is our freedom of speech in this country the ability to talk through these issues. You know, there's so much pressure for people to come to a certain conclusion about things in the media, in the culture, it's in the air. A lot of politicians maybe aren't even brave enough to pick up that phone to call somebody like you, Dr. Prentice, to get that, you know, one or two minutes of of truth on a particular medical issue. But the fact that we can talk about it here and think out loud, you know, um, with each other about what matters is is such a gift. Uh, It's a wonderful thing. Dr. Prentice, Noah, thank you so much for this conversation. Thank you for being here. Thank you. All right, if you enjoyed the show, please open up Apple Podcasts or wherever you're listening, rate the show, leave a review, and share a message with a friend. Let them know you've discovered life, liberty, and law. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for Dr. Prentice or for us, drop us an email at life at I'm Tom Shakely, and until next time, thanks for listening to Life, Liberty, and Law.